We've been uh, dealing with the subject of losing your religion, losing my religion, and uh, I believe a very basic premise of the New Testament and what Jesus teaches continually is the idea that uh, in order for you to have the kind of relationship with Christ that you ought to have, that a beginning point is uh, losing your religion. Now that may sound contrary to what the way you've always believed or the thoughts that uh, you grew up on in wherever church you grew up in if you were in church, but I think I can prove to you today in the scripture that that's exactly what Jesus is teaching us. If you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 uh, contains three stories that Jesus told uh, in relationship to religion. He's talking about religion. I want to read the first two verses because they're sort of foundational uh, for the story or at least the context in which the story was told. It says in verse 1, then all of the tax collectors and sinners drew near in order to hear him. They drew near to him. And what we see right here at the very beginning of the chapter is, is that Jesus is uh, involving himself with people that are unsavory. Now, when we see the word tax collector, what do we think about? IRS. Now, we have some people right here in the congregation this morning that work for the IRS. And I want you to know that while your job doesn't actually please me, that that's not who Jesus is talking about right here. Anybody who's ever been audited can understand why Jesus wouldn't want to eat with these guys. But that's not exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about folks who are representative of the Roman government who were overtaxing them and just thought to be uh, the worst of the worst in Jesus' day. So it really says two things. He's eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. Now let me tell you what, as good as some of you are in the congregation this morning, if you're not a tax collector, then you're a sinner. Jesus was eating with some people whom the religious leaders in the church thought to be folks that he shouldn't be seen with, that he shouldn't be around. Now I have a hard time with this, and let me tell you why. If you are here this morning and you're a believer, you're a Christ follower, and you don't have a relationship with one of these folks who's outside a relationship with God right now, if you're not enjoying or sharing life with somebody who doesn't already know Jesus, then you're not doing what the gospel tells you to do. You're not being salt and light. You're not investing yourself. You're not doing life with someone that you might influence. Well, the religious leaders didn't see it that way in that day. They wanted to stick with their own kind. And if you were sitting down at a meal with someone who was less than religious, it angered them. And so they began this language of complaint against Jesus. And in verse 2, it says that exact thing. It's Pharisees and the scribes, uh, the preachers, the elders, the deacons, whoever you, however you want to use those terms, uh, complained, saying... This man 
receives sinners and eats with them. Well, Jesus had already made it clear what his ministry was about. Remember, I have come to seek and save those who are lost. I've come to invest my ministry in folks who don't know God and who need to. I've come to live life with people who, if they don't know me, won't make heaven. Come to seek and save those who are lost. And in, re- in response to their complaint, Jesus tells three stories. First, if you look at the rest of the chapter, is the story of the good shepherd. Remember, there were a hundred sheep, 99 were in the fold, one was lost, and the shepherd's uh, activity was directed, his, his zeal was directed towards the one lost sheep. Then he tells the story of the lost coin and, and the lady who searched diligently throughout her house for the lost coin. And then he tells the story of the prodigal son, or, or better spoken, the story of the loving father, the amazing loving father. Scholars say that this may very well have been the very first indication of what we would call the Trinity today. The Good Shepherd, obviously a story representing Jesus, who had come to seek and save lost people. The lost coin talks about how the lady searched diligently, would not quit, and and the Holy Spirit of God searches our hearts repetitively, guiding us and loving us and ministering to us. It's the part of God that lives within us, searching us, convicting us. And then the story of the prodigal son, the loving father, is a picture of God, perhaps the greatest, closest to my heart picture of God in all the Scripture. Because it tells us that even though we are less than we should be, even though we have gone to the far country, anybody here been to the far country today? Come on. I've been to Las Vegas with 50 of you. No, Scott, not Florida. Florida's good. Every single one of us have done some things in our life that we regret, haven't we? Sure we have. You might have done something this morning. Maybe you went to the far country on your way to church. See, it's easy to get there, tough to get home. And so it's good to know. Matter of fact, it is amazing to know that when we go to the far country and we come home, God's standing there. Matter of fact, in the Scripture, He runs to us in order to redeem us. And in this story that we're going to focus on today, we see a collision of religion and redemption. We see hatred and love in the same story. We see religion uh, uh, being more important in an individual's life than a relationship. And it crystallizes in our mind as God teaches us through His Son Jesus what it looks like to have a relationship to him, with Him over against what it looks like to be a religious person. I'm going to pick up the story in verse 21. Remember that the, the prodigal, the, the younger son, has asked for his inheritance, he's taken what was his, and he's wasted it. He's wasted it quickly. 
And, and he's in a pig pen, bad place for a Jewish boy to be, and he's come to himself, and he's headed home. He's made his homecoming, please forgive me, speech, and we picked up on that in verse 21. Father, the son says, I've sinned against heaven. In your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And in the middle of this speech, in the middle of this declaration uh, of his sin, the father stops him. Stops him. Father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a, a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Eat, drink. Doesn't say drink, excuse me. Scratch that one. Eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, he's alive again. He was lost, he's found, and they began to be merry. His older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near the house, he heard music and he heard dancing, and he called out to one of his servants and basically said, what is going on? What's going on? And they said to him, your brother's come home because he has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. He was angry and he wouldn't go in, and the father came out and pleaded with him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at no time. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, this is one of my favorite parts of the scripture. Those of you who are married here today with children, have you ever looked at your spouse and said, as soon as this son of yours, denying your part in it, right? As soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, 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 you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. If you have your notes this morning, I have some things I want you to write down that I think will help you apply this passage as you carry out your business throughout the week. And the very first of these actually comes from that first part of the story we read. And it simply says this, religion, religion breeds complaints. They were complaining. Jesus was eating with the sinners. They were complaining. And so Jesus responds to their complaints with these stories. I want you to know that I complain about a lot of things, don't you? You complain today? I have, I have spent a lot of time over the past three months complaining about the weather, haven't you? I mean, this ain't right. This is, it's going to be spring this week, and it is liable to snow on that day. I, I'm sick of it, aren't you? Let's all complain right now. I mean, it isn't the way it should be. I, until this weekend, I've been complaining a lot about basketball. I don't know what happened to the team that was supposed to be 40 and 0. 
I've complained. I've, I've said bad things about the coach, the players. I've even complained about the ushers just because they ought to be doing better up there. I've complained about a lot of things. But here's what I know. When you get inside a religious facility and you meet the people inside a religious facility and complaints start to be offered up, and and I know that most of you have never complained about anything while you were in church. In anybody's church, you've walked in and you've been blissfully happy. You've never said this could be better, this could be different. You've never uttered a complaint, but in case you have, listen to me. I have never heard a complaint that had anything to do with what happens here or in any other church that didn't come out of a heart of religion. Think about it. I'm complaining because I don't like this. It goes against what I think religion ought to look like. I'm complaining because this guy gets more of a blessing than me. Or this lady has been received with more grace than I have. And there's something about religion which says that you have to be good or good enough in order to make it to heaven, that you have to live a certain way, do certain things, worship a certain way in order to be in the favor of God. There's something about religion that causes you to be prone to complaining when something doesn't happen like your religion says it should. It, it also com, uh, can cause you to be less than merciful. Matter of fact, religion can blind us to mercy, can't it? it? It can cause us to have this attitude that the older brother had. I am the good one. And he's the bad one. Now, I've never had a brother and sister, and I'm kind of grateful for that. Because I've raised a bunch of children, and I've watched how they interact with each other. And, and none of them have ever come to me and said, you know what? I'm the bad one. My brother and my sister, they're better. They're a lot better. None of them have even come to me and said, you know, we are all equally good or all equally bad. It's always, do you know what your sister did? Do you know what your brother did? What are you going to do about it? Do you love him more than you love me? You bought her that and you got me nothing. And so underneath kind of the religious aspect, there's this sibling rivalry, but religion mirrors that. I come to church every week. And I don't have what they have. I give to the offering. I'm a tither. And God hasn't blessed me like He's blessed them. This guy was giving this speech and you can just hear the acidity drip from his tongue. I have been here and I have never, ever done anything wrong, Dad. Well, that's stupid, isn't it? Because there's some really good people here, but you all have messed up. We've all messed up. 
Dad, I've been here right where I should be doing what I should be doing, and now you're going to kill the fatted calf. You've given him a ring and a robe and a ribeye, and I've done everything right, and i got nothing. You ever felt that way? Sure you have. Because we're all jealous and greedy down deep, aren't we? Maybe not a few of you. It blinds us from embracing mercy. Despises freedom. I know that wasn't in order, but I was out there and didn't have my little notepad here. If you live by religion and by a set of rules and you think that your, your, your place in heaven is dependent on living by that set of rules, then you're going to hate freedom. You're going to hate people that live in the freedom of their salvation. You're going to hate people who live in grace and mercy. You're going to despise freedom. And I think the older brother teaches us that religion causes us to focus more on the weakness of men than on the goodness of God. Burlington is a good place to live because it is ripe with sin. Amen? I don't have to look very far. I can just look around my house in your house and find sin. I can see weaknesses. I could walk back through the congregation today and I could expose your weaknesses. I could stand here in front of you today and run down the list of things that I have done in my life, things that I've thought about, places I've gone, sins that I've committed, and you would say, man, I feel good now. I'm not the only bad one here. And every single one of us has our own particular set of weaknesses, don't we? Places we are are prone to sin, our addictions, places where the devil works overtime in our lives. And it's very, very easy when you are religious to start to focus on the weaknesses and the sins, the brokenness of people around you. It's exactly what the older brother was doing. His whole complaint, his whole big problem that day was about his brother. And and he kind of recounted the story for his father who knew every bit of it. He has wasted your money. If you're a dad, you know your money gets wasted, don't you? You don't have to be told that. Loose women. He's wasted your money. All he could talk about was what a bum his brother was. And we far too often, friends, base what we're thinking about, what we choose to do, how good we feel about ourselves on looking at the weaknesses and the sins of those around us. Listen to me. This guy was standing in the presence of God. 
Can you imagine standing in the presence of God? Don't you think that you would be overwhelmed with His glory, with His goodness, with His majesty? This guy is standing in the presence of mercy. And all he can think about is the weaknesses of his brother. You know, I think you would live life a lot differently. I think you'd look at other people differently. I think your relationships would be different. If you began to think more about how good God is rather than how bad other people are. I think you would learn to to gravitate towards mercy and away from orthodoxy. I believe grace would be more important to you than judgment. I believe it would be a lot easier to forgive. You see, the problem is, and I think it happens more in church than anywhere else I know, the, the problem and the reason we embrace religion and the reason we, we, we look so deeply and, and talk so freely about weaknesses in other people is that when we see other people stumble and fall, it makes us feel better about ourselves, doesn't it? You know, I may have done that, but I didn't do that. I didn't do it as many times either. And we build our ego falsely. We claim our righteousness falsely. We fool ourselves about who we really are. By those comparisons. The other thing about the scene that I like is that they were at a party. They were at a party. They could hear the music and the frivolity. I dare say, listen to me guys, there was dancing there. I know they were eating good. And, and, and here's what seems to me to have happened over the years. The word party and Baptist, they're rarely used in the same sentence. We have been a little skeptical about people who are having too much fun, haven't we? Amen? You know, well, it might be okay for us to go to the party, but we're not going to get involved. Instead, we have leaned towards being solemn, sad, and serious. Now listen to me. I understand that in in, in our attempt to reach God and worship God, that there are times when we have to be still, and we have to be quiet, and we have to shut out everything else that will keep us from focusing on God. There have to be times... where we listen. But I am just as convicted that there have to be times when we party. There have to be times when we rejoice in the presence of God. There have to be times when you and I are so excited by what God has done in our life that we were lost and now we're found, that we were broken and now we're healed, that we had a diagnosis of death and now we're alive. That we party. 
It's okay to get crazy. Now, my mother grew up in a different church than I did. And right across from where she lived, the Baptists were up on the hill. You go look in Richland, Kentucky. You find it. You can look. They lived down the road in the middle of the Baptist church and the Pentecostal church. The first time my mother heard Kent Holland sing, she said, he's a Pentecostal. Why did you hire a Pentecostal? And I said, Mom, why do you think that? Well, he's having fun up there. He likes what he's doing. He danced a little. That that tore her up. She got over it. And you see, somewhere along the way, we're a lot like the older brother who was really, really mad because his religion didn't suit and connect with a party. And so he didn't go in. And I am convinced that so many of us miss the richness and fullness and the joy of our salvation because anytime something looks like it might be fun, we run. We run. Brother, older brother, he wasn't happy with how the judgment had gone down either. You notice that? He thought there needed to be, and I want you to write these two words down because sometimes these two words and religion are all wrapped up together. He thought there needed to be a little more repentance on the brother's side, the younger brother's side, and a little more punishment. Hey, he's done all this, and that's all you're going to do to him, Dad? You ever prayed that to God? Maybe you didn't say it. Maybe you were afraid to say it out loud. But you said something like, so-and-so and so-and-so have done this, and now they've just come back to church and acted like everything's okay. We ought to punish them a little more. We ought to make sure they know how big a sinner they are. You want to see that happen, just get divorced in church, by the way. You can feel like an outcast pretty quick. And sometimes that's what religion screams. They're not sorry enough. Well, how sorry is sorry enough? Aren't you glad God isn't religious? Huh? Every once in a while, somebody will say, have you ever kicked anybody out of church? Did they do something and you kicked them out of church? And my response is always this. If somebody's done something that deserves kicking out, then they need to be here more than they need to be anywhere else. The older brother missed that. What God had to say about the matter wasn't good enough for him. He wanted more. Religion 
majors on minor things. Kind of ignores what's most important. When he started his speech about what should have happened to his brother, the father who wasn't very prone to listening to speeches long. That should say something sometimes about how long we lecture God or pray to God about what we think should happen, shouldn't it? Kind of stopped both speeches. And he said, listen, guy, listen, son. Can you imagine the father looking at the son in this moment? Heartbroken because there was a gulf between the two boys that he loved. Heartbroken because this son, who had been good and who had been faithful, had a hard heart. Can you imagine the father looking at this son and saying, stop. Everything I have is yours. Not because you deserve it, but because I love you. Everything. And when God says everything, that's a bunch. And then he says, but it's right. It's right that we have this party. Because your brother was dead. He was lost. And now he's found. And he's alive. You see, that's the heart of the gospel, guys. That's the same grace that's available to everyone, even those who you might think don't deserve it. And it's available to you. That same grace is available to change your heart, to wipe out the hatred, to wipe out the jealousy, to wipe out the religious self-righteousness that somehow or another is so easy to see and find in our lives. God's grace is sufficient for the prodigal and for the religious. God's grace is sufficient for the sinner and the saint. God's grace is sufficient for the person who believes that they need it the most. God's grace is sufficient for those of us who think we don't need it at all. And what happens when we get religious when we start to think that it's based on our performance and on our works, and we start to think it's based on our resume and our record, when we start to think that heaven is, is based on our goodness, we start to forget that Jesus climbed a cross because religion had failed. We start to forget that Jesus climbed a cross and he died on that cross so you could live. 
we start to forget that he climbed a cross and his blood was shed to cover the sin. Not just those sins that we despise in others, but our pride and our self-righteousness and our bigotry. We start to forget that had he not climbed that cross, even the most religious among us would land in spot in hell. Easy to forget. Easy to forget when you're religious that all that matters is that by grace, through faith, through believing, that you'll see him one day. I think this morning's a good time for those of us who think we've got it all together. And there's going to be a lot of good things come our way because we're really good people. Time to take a look in the mirror and realize that our goodness doesn't matter much. It's time for those of us who have been in the far country to come back, isn't it? Man, it's a miserable place to live, isn't it? Knowing where you should be and what you should be doing, what you could have. Time to come home. In this story, religion and redemption, they collide. Redemption wins. It's time for you and I to be redeemed. To be who we should be in Christ. To rest on His mercy. To live in gratefulness for what He's done. It's time to do that today. Just a moment, we're going to open this altar. And on my left and on my right, there's an opportunity for you to come celebrate the grace of God. He really did die, you know. Communion is a way that you can say, thank you, I remember, I'll never forget that I'm not good enough and only He is. So you come do that today if God calls you to. Come kneel at this altar. Allow God to change the way you think, the way you live. Allow God to change your priorities. Maybe for the first time today you realize that what you're doing to get to heaven doesn't cut it. And you need to come and rely on the sacrifice of Jesus and the grace. Come trust Him. Maybe you need to say, you know what? This looks like a pretty good church. I think it might be where God wants me. Come call this place home. Whatever it is, guys, this is the time to do it. This is the place to do it. The day to do it. Because what we've always thought has been wrong. If it's not about Jesus... You'll not see him one day. Pray with me. Father, here and now, 
we realize the fallacy, the lie that many of us have bought into. We've been complainers and whiners and jealous and fooled ourselves into believing a lie. But today we realize that without you, we are helpless, we are hopeless, we are lost. We realize that out, without being connected to you by your grace and our faith that our eternity is in doubt. We realize that you came to make heaven easy and attainable and assured for us. And we accept that gift today. We accept, we come running to accept that gift today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that your grace is more than enough. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand with me.